Hello, welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's Peter, Anahit and Jamie once again in the shadow of Edinburgh Castle having a lovely time doing the podcasting. How is everybody? Not too bad. Yeah, good. Good stuff. Positive start. <laughs> so, um, so we've got a lot to get through on today's show. It's a very special episode of the Cine Skinny because we're going to be talking about one thing a lot as opposed to what we normally do, which is talk about many things a lot and then run over time and end up stressing ourselves out about it. So this episode is all about the upcoming Glasgow Film Festival. Yay! Um, yes! Festivals! Hype! Jamie's yeah. <laughs> just nodding. Energy! <laughs> we love them. Nodding, great for radio. <laughs> <laughs> and one special thing about this episode is we're actually uh, supported by Glasgow Film Festival to put it together. So for those of you who don't know, Glasgow Film Festival is one of the UK's leading film festivals and this year's festival programme features 10 world premieres, 65 UK premieres and over 100 films from around the world. You can find the full Glasgow Film Festival programme at glasgowfilm.org. So Glasgow Film Festival runs from the 2nd to the 13th of March and this year for the first time you'll be able to see their gala screenings at cinemas up and down the country that are not in Glasgow. Um, and a selection of some of the festival's best films are also going to be on their Glasgow Film at Home streaming platform. So we're big fans of Glasgow Film Festival. They've been really supportive of The Skinny and of us over the years, and it's great to have them on board for the podcast. We're going to be talking about films in the programme, things that we've seen and are excited about, things that we haven't seen but are still excited about. But for more details on the Glasgow Film Festival 2022 programme, you can visit glasgowfilm.org, glasgowfilm.org. And yeah, thanks to GFF for uh, supporting us with money, I believe. <laughs> Thank <Which> is... you. <laughs> thanks, GFF. <laughs> right. Podcast can eat this one. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so before we get into this year's programme, probably a good idea to give people a bit of background on GFF and on film festivals kind of in general. So maybe I'll go to you first, Jamie. There's obviously a lot of film festivals, a lot of places to watch film, that Glasgow Film Fest. What is it that makes Glasgow Film Festival so special and good? Well, I've been going there for years. I've been going there since I was a student, and it's kind of changed a bit over the time. Over the years, it's kind of really grown in stature, and it's become a kind of ma- big highlight on the film calendar, I think. And a kind of big launch pad, actually, for lots of films in the spring, so lots of films playing at GFF you'll see coming out in the next few months. And the thing about Glasgow is it's never had the kind of funding that kind of London or Edinburgh has, you know, so... Because of that, and it hasn't really went into the kind of glamour of the kind of red carpets and the glitz. So instead of having this kind of velvet rope where sort of punters feel that they're maybe not invited, instead it's been very open, it's very friendly. And because it doesn't have the kind of glitz and the glamour, it's had to have a really kind of inventive programme. So it's kind of become famous for these kind of site-specific events, which we're not going to see this much this year because of COVID. But, you know, that's kind of what's really become famous for taking classic films and showing them in unusual spaces. So things like The Thing, uh, Ski Slope in Brayhead, or The Warriors shown in uh, Enoch's Underground Station. Yeah, and it's just a bit hipper, you know, it kind of does things that other festivals struggle with. So it does kind of music events really well and it always feels really integrated with the programme. Um, they've been super forward thinking in terms of the ticketing. For example, all the retrospective films are free in the morning and they're really popular. You know, people queue up to see these old movies um, and it make, means that people who don't have like a huge disposable income can really enjoy the festival, you know, and come every day and see, see great stuff. And I think, yeah, the fact it feels so friendly is like they're really great at welcoming people in. So every film, for example, is 
is introduced by somebody from the festival, usually either Alison Gardner or Alan Hunter, who are the programmers, the kind of sort of sorry co-directors of the festival. And yeah, they just did a kind of great job of making you feel welcome, being very enthusiastic about the films. I think something sometimes about festivals is you've got to remember usually festivals put films in for all different sorts of reasons. So like other festivals might program things because an agent has sort of given a package of movies. Or, you know, they might hope that a kind of celebrity is going to turn up to go on the red carpet. But I always feel like with GFF, the films are programmed in a really, yeah, in a, in a way that's because the films are great. You know, that's the kind of, there's a kind of passion behind the films, you know. Uh, maybe I won't mention one festival, but there's a, a festival that I used to go to a lot um, where one of the programmers had a kind of side gig as an actor. And he would always like... Uh, Programmers on films, and you know they, they tend to be terrible. So there's none of that. It's like oh my like, god, what festival was that? Well, I maybe shouldn't say. Uh, <laughs> if I hand you there. this notepad, can you just write it down and then slide it back across the table? <laughs> I would say maybe that's not uh, worth including in the podcast. But anyway, yeah, there's always a feeling that these films are here because somebody in the program really loves them, and somebody's there to introduce you to them. And even if you don't like the film, you feel it's there for the reason or the right reasons, you know. And that that's what I always feel at the festival. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I'm still. I still feel like a little bit of a baby when it comes to Glasgow Film Festival because the first one I properly attended was last year, and so by attended I mean I sat in bed and watched everything on the press platform uh, while we were in lockdown, which was like it did genuinely make lockdown a little bit better, which I think actually is very very high praise given how awful everything was this time last year. Um, I think what really struck me about last year's program is that there were a couple of films that just became some of my favorites over the whole year. So one of them was There Is No Evil, which had won, I think, The Golden Bear at Berlin. It's this Iranian film. Then there was Gagarin, um, which then I think showed on Mubi, and it was just really beautiful. And you could just kind of attend the festival and just discover some of the best films of the year. And I really like that it has that mix of, yeah, the very local, the very specific, but it does have this big international outlook. Um, and so even if you're not, because I think sometimes when you work in film, you just spend so much time like going around to like different festivals or whatever, that it becomes quite easy to just be quite in touch with everything maybe, or to kind of forget just how important local programming is. But they kind of do that work. Like you don't have to have seen, like been to like five different festivals to see some of the best films because they like bring it to Scotland um I really love that about it and I I mean we will talk about the program this year specifically but it is just so good like when they announced it I was like oh my god like it's (laughs) wild it is every the best of everything from like Venice Cannes and London is all here I think because the program with such integrity you can go can go along kind of blind as well like I think what we've done today I think in this program we've tried to pick out kind of randomly three things that maybe aren't sort of the sort of headline films um you know so obviously they do have sort of films from Paul Verhoeven and Sean Baker and you know lots of hugely anticipated films but if you just dig into the program you'll find interesting things because like I say I feel that everything in the program is there for the right reasons you know somebody really likes that film and the team yeah because I think that's one thing for maybe people who might be listening to this who don't go to a lot of film festivals and aren't in the kind of like film because I'm not really in that film world I'm just I'm just along with the two of you but uh, there is yeah film festivals aren't necessarily like music festivals where you get kind of like bedded in for the whole weekend and go and see absolutely everything 
you can't realistically watch every film on a film festival program and you certainly can't leave 20 minutes in because you want to try and catch the end of something else. So I think it's important that these kind of things are, like Jamie was saying, well-programmed and like you were saying, Annie, there's a good hit rate in terms of if you pick something blind or with very little information, then you're going to get something good. Yeah. And we've tried, yeah, with the three films that we're going to talk about in a bit of depth, hopefully there'll be films you've never heard of before, <laughs> but you'll want to see after we've talked about them. That's the power of a film festival. Yep. And that's the power of this podcast. Yes. That's what we're going to Our say. power is unmatched. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot be stopped. <laughs> okay, so the first of the three films we're going to talk about today is the film that I picked. It's a film called Superior, and it's a psychological thriller about a woman who goes on the run from her abusive partner and goes to stay with her identical twin sister in their kind of small American hometown. Marion, who is on the run, is a punk musician, and Vivian, her uh, twin sister, is a stay-at-home housewife who spends her days doing the gardening and trying to get pregnant by her incredibly comically dull husband. (laughs) Um, when Marion comes back on the scene, the twins kind of like reconnect and over time they start to kind of blur the boundaries between each other's lives in a very kind of slightly spooky, creepy, psychological sense. So it's a first feature film by the director, Erin Vassilopoulos, and it stars Alessandra and Annie Mesa, who are a pair of real life twins who play these lead characters of Marion and Vivian. And... The reason I'm talking about this primarily is because in the GFF program, it said, imagine if David Lynch had directed The Parent Trap, this is the (laughs) film that would result. And I'm like, I know what I like. That's just like bait on the end of a string. I was loving it. I think that stylistically, this film is great. It really kind of captures that b-movie small town vibe the color palette is just all like wood paneling fuchsia avocado and the color of blood the sets are all great there's really kind of like deliberate stilted energy to some of the performances it gives it a very weird vibe and i think that when it starts to get really kind of like weird and naughty that's when it's at its best and there's some really effective bob from twin peaks style flashback slash dream sequences There's kind of moments in the film where it doesn't necessarily let you know which twin that you're following at the start of a scene. And when it starts to kind of play with those uh, boundaries between these two characters and sort of creates this weird kind of like tension and interweaving between them, that's when it is at its most effective. It's a really weird, odd, fun, exciting bit of filmmaking. Also, I have to shout out Vivian's husband, the greyest man in the world. (laughs) Super dull guy. (laughs) Almost his first line is, he just turns to Marion and says, oh, are you into coins? Aren't we all into coins? In a way. (laughs) And the line delivery is basically the Jerry Seinfeld, uh, do you like jazz meme from B-Movie. It's classic. I love to see it. Um, So yeah, this is like a really weird, fun, well-made, kind of exciting an interesting film and the kind of film that when you're looking through a brochure full of films that almost by definition you haven't seen any of it's an interesting pitch but it's also an interesting film that comes out of it it's not just like here's one line oh no it turns out it's not actually like that yeah the parent trap comparison is really because i didn't read the brochure (laughs) (laughs) because uh my homework this week was not 
fully done. Um, and so I didn't read like the notes on it. But there is this one scene, this isn't really a spoiler, but where they're like cutting each other's hair to look the same. And so it's not even like a kind of thing, it's literally, it is the parent trap in a lot of ways. And I really love that about it. I see the kind of David Lynch comparison, but weirdly, what I was mostly thinking of when I was watching it was Almodovar. I think especially in the production design, the way that it's shot, because the houses that they're in, there's a lot of quite interior scenes, um, and it's both simultaneously very lush and austere production design. So it's all very flat and very angular, but drenched in color. And it reminded me of the way that, yeah, Almodovar's characters as well are quite often navigating and trapped in these interior domestic spaces. It took me a bit of time to get into this. Like, to begin with, I was like, oh, what? And it's been out a while as well. I think it came out in Sundance last year. Did it premiere, maybe? So it's kind of been doing the rounds for a while. And yeah, like reading a few things that other people had said, I wasn't sure about it to begin with. Um, but then it does become clear quite how deliberate it's like artificiality and stilted tone are in a way that in the first few minutes you're like, oh, is this just bad filmmaking? But then, yeah, it is very deliberate. And then you do have this quite explicit theme of like that gothic double in these two twins that kind of throws into relief just how similar their lives are. Um, even when they're miles apart, you have one that's like the dutiful housewife and you have one that's the wild child. But with both of them, there's a sense of like, being hemmed in, of having to choose the part that you're going to play in life um, and how it's ultimately so unfulfilling because you're navigating the same structures even if you're doing it very differently. And I thought it like engaged with these ideas of like contemporary womanhood and that idea of being stifled and stuck in yeah really interesting genre ways, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I totally agree. That, like For me, the, it's the atmosphere of the film that, really makes it and it looks amazing as well it's shot in 16 millimeter film and it kind of looks like a film from the 80s you know it, it feels like a film that's been discovered and sort of unearthed you mm. know it doesn't feel like a pastiche of the 80s from now you know so i love its kind of style and the way it kind of it is a few degrees off reality and all the films that feel like that um and it opens like you know uh, kiss me deadly you know the, the robert Altrich film with this woman running down the street with headlights in her eyes and it's yeah so it's got it's kind of soaked in this kind of tradition of uh, film noir and there's a scene at the end which reminds me of uh, Rear Window where somebody's got a camera with light bulbs and, I, and I, I love the idea of these two opposite women who actually very slowly and very naturalistically start to change personas almost it's a bit like performance or something like that like where you've got two two opposite characters who actually merge at some point um, and I love, it's, it's kind of a good hangout movie as well because I love the atmosphere of this town it's this kind of nowhere America it's kind of just before Halloween, it's kind of snowy, everything's a bit empty and weird. Marion gets a job at a, a kind of ice cream stand, <laughs> weirdly, even though it's freezing cold, people want <laughs> ice cream. And it's and I loved all that stuff because it's got a real kind of dark sense of humour. You, know? you, could, you could maybe argue that the, the husband character, who's, who's who, um, I'll get mixed up with the, the, the woman now, Marion is on the run from, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, Marion's on the run from her husband, and, and he's kind of a little bit one note. He does feel like he stepped out of like Lost Highway or something like that. He's this kind of slick back haired, uh, evil guy with a um, you know, in a leather jacket. And we don't quite know his story. He's like a bit of a mystery. And the film is full of these little mysteries. I love how like there's a, a seashell that plays a really mysterious uh, element, and it's really sort of prominent in the first 
the first ten minutes of the film, and then we forget about it, and then it comes back. And there's, it's full of those kind of little quirky moments. Uh, there's a scene where they just go swimming, and she's sitting by the pool eating potato chips. And I don't know, just there's just like quirky little scenes that I really appreciate. It's just a film that I like to hang out with, even though I kind of saw where it was going. That the sort of story is not that unfamiliar. Yeah, I just enjoyed the world that it sort of dropped me in. And uh, speaking of the seashell, so one thing to note about this film is it kind of emerged from a short film that Erin Vassilopoulos made when she was at film school, which came out in, well, she released in 2015. Same director and the same pair of lead twin actors. And she's talked in like interviews and I think when it played at Sundance to say that this film, because confusingly they're both called Superior, she's <laughs> like, the feature film is like an extension of the stuff that was explored with the twin characters in the short film. Um, and the seashell is featured in the short film. So I would say, if you're going to see this film, go on Vimeo and watch the short first, because that's a really good introduction to the tone and the characters and the kind of like energy and the vibe of the film. And you'll get some kind of like little Easter eggs or like when you see things in the feature, they will maybe make a touch more sense, but not too much um, <laughs> by the time that you come to them, if you've already like seen them in this 15-minute short to start with. Um, but I mean, overall, I think this is the kind of film that really, this is one of the things that film festivals in general are really good at, is like bringing a film like this, which is quite a small budget, uh, first-time filmmaker, a cast that you may not recognize, but kind of giving it some prominence and giving people a chance to see it on their doorstep. Yeah, it felt like a discovery, which is really exciting. Like, I don't know if I would have necessarily made time to watch it because I hadn't heard that much about it. Um, and again, like you say, that is the role the film festival plays, that you're not just going for the things that you've heard about a million times, um, but you can, like, experiment a little bit. And I am really glad that we did. Mm. Yeah, and it's the kind of film we can imagine, mate, like, end up in a movie or some streaming platform but this is a chance to see it on the big screen and like I say it looks gorgeous it has an amazing soundtrack so if you're into like 80s synth and new wave you're gonna like it it's a great fashion movie like the clothes are fantastic and I love how like uh, each woman have very distinct clothing but like they have to kind of swap clothes all the way through the film and yeah I love all that it's great so Superior is on at GFF on Tuesday the 8th and Wednesday the 9th of March Okay, and Anna Heat's pick is uh, Zalava. Yes, so this film showed at Venice um, and it won an award over there. And I did try and see it in Venice, but I went to the wrong screening and then they wouldn't let me in. And I was so upset. I sat on the leader and cried for like 10 minutes. So I went into this with a lot of uh, emotions and expectations. <laughs> so it's set in the town of Zalava in Iradian, Iranian Kurdistan one year before the Iranian Revolution in 1978. And at the start of the film, a sergeant from the police force who is played by Navid Purfaraj, um, who I cannot emphasize enough, is the most Iranian a person has ever looked on the planet, ever. Like he has this huge mustache, this like thick 70s hair. No one has ever or will ever look more Iranian, like ever in their lives. Um, anyway, he has been sent to this town Zalava following localized panic about a demon possession that apparently happens about once a year. And the locals believe that if you let blood out of the possessed person, the demon will be killed. And so he confiscates their guns. 
And in brief, it ends in tragedy. And all of that happens within the first like couple of minutes of the film. And the rest of the film follows what happens when he returns to the town following um, an exorcist, Amar Dan, and the tension between this non-believing out-of-towner who thinks all of these locals, um, who are all like Kurdish people, like he believes they're just like superstitious and full of nonsense. And then they're very, very real fears. I watched this with my brother. I really hope that doesn't make the screener police come for me. I hope that's allowed. Um, but he is much better at Iranian history than me. So I'm just like citing my sources. But yeah, this is billed as a horror. And while I don't think it's necessarily the most effective use of the genre, purely in terms of like scares per minute, I think it's like self-conscious engagement or almost, I guess, like lack of engagement with the genre is what makes it really interesting. Um, not to spoil anything, but there is, I think, throughout the film, like a real degree of ambiguity about these demon possessions, what exactly they are, if they are happening. And we, the audience, are kind of placed in that same uncertain space. And so I think what it does is it makes it a film that's about fear itself rather than necessarily about the supernatural. Um, and it's about like, yeah, the potency of that pure emotion, the horrifying effects it can have. Um, I found it most interesting as a film about its contemporary cultural context. So it happens like right before the revolution, which is the time when the Shah was pushing like incredibly hard for modernization in the country. So through like things like women's education, health, like various things. And there's this kind of tension that I think the film is focusing on between tradition and belief and this very like imposed modernity. So you see it in the character of the police sergeant Masood and the way he goes into the village and he just kind of like pushes his way in and he steamrolls over everyone's fears. And the kind of, there's a female doctor in the village that he has like this kind of thing for and her much more like gentle ways of trying to engage with the people in this kind of quite civic way are completely overturned by this kind of manifestation of state power. I think all Iranian cinema, like all modern, like post-revolution Iranian cinema is in some ways about like this fractured national identity. So I think you have filmmakers like Asghar Farhadi who his films are kind of looking at it in quite like a social realist sense, right? Of like the very granular ways that like social conventions play out after the revolution. Or you have people like Jafar Panahi, who is like very explicitly critical of like the horrors and the oppression of the regime. Um, and in all of these films, the revolution is seen as like a tipping point um, and rightfully so. But it was really interesting to see a film that goes further back and that looks at the tipping point that happens just before. Um, yeah, I hadn't really seen that all that much, like looking very specifically at that point in history. Um, and also from a perspective that we don't get a lot. I think a lot of Iranian cinema is quite often like in Tehran, in the big cities, and to kind of have gone like into this sort of like minority ethnic group. Um, and I believe the director himself is also Iranian Kurdish. So that was really interesting. It's very tightly constructed, it's very focused, and I think that will work for some people and maybe not for others. I can see how it would feel that it never fully takes off, um, but I think that restraint worked for me because it created like a particular sense of dread and a very particular kind of commentary on, yeah, like Iranian history and its effects today. So yeah, I liked it. I am glad that I finally saw it. Um, it was maybe worth crying on the leader.
That's right, recommendation. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I really was intrigued by the premise, and I love films which do play with that ambiguity about, about you know, whether what we're seeing on screen is on the protagonist's mind or is it a real kind of threat, a real horror. And I think the film's really best um, when it plays with that. There's a real kind of great middle section where Masood, the sergeant, has... Um, arrested this kind of sh- person who he thinks is a kind of shyster, this kind of a shaman who's ridding the village of demons, and he takes him to um, back to headquarters. And th- there's a kind of scene overnight where he's left alone with this jar, which the shaman says that he's trapped a demon. And you know, he he being the the big cynic says, "Oh, this is rubbish. It's just an empty pickle jar." But as the night slowly goes on, he sort of starts to sort of look at it, and there's a lot of kind of nice horror tropes and there's like a little black cat who makes an appearance yeah. who is the absolute star of the movie if you love cats there's a, there's a great cat performance it steals the film and the cat is playing with this jar and will it break it will it smash and yeah that that sort of whole scene and that that sort of sense of atmosphere um was really potent and sort of pregnant with like all sorts of uh, sort of ideas yeah for me i think maybe if i knew a bit more about um 78 and knew a bit more about this area of um, Iranian history, I might have appreciated it more because I, I could sort of tell there is some sort of metaphor going on here. There is sort of some allegory, and like you say, most Iranian films work in allegory in some way, usually because they can't really, sh- you know, yeah. speak openly about the regime. But yeah, I, so I felt there was something going on there that I maybe just couldn't quite touch because of my lack of knowledge. So maybe, maybe if you're more well informed, you'd get more out of it. But yeah, I loved, again, it's another film which looks great, has great atmosphere. The village is insane. Like, there's this village in the mountains where it seems to be built on sort of stilts and things like that. It's like, and it's really atmospheric. Um, And there's a great scene wandering through the village and, you know, the greatest shadow and sort of horror Mm. tropes like that. Um, But yeah, I actually appreciate how funny it was as well. It's got a real kind of dark sense of humour running through it. Um, There's a kind of great character who's the sidekick. (laughs) <laughs> to the um, sergeant who's like basically the comic relief who's uh, a clueless ninny who uh, is like it, basically I, I saw it a bit like it's like a Scooby-Doo episode trying to work out uh, if, if the village is if the village is really haunted and this this kind of guy was the kind of shaggy character who was like constantly <laughs> terrified um so that's that's how I saw it um but yeah a, a kind of interesting film I, I I don't think it'll work for me but I think part of that is my ignorance maybe but Peter what did you think? I, yeah, I just want to echo what you're saying about it. So Bassett Rezai is the actor who plays Eunice, who is this kind of assistant army policeman. And he has some really great moments, one of which is right at the start. So one of the things about Masood is that he is being in another kind of like genre trope. It's his last big job because he's being booted out of the garrison. And uh, Eunice reads this letter to him that he's been sent by the kind of command that is just a litany of reasons why he is getting the book and he reads it in this really kind of like oh and it says here you like took all the weapons and you slapped a couple of them and he's just sort of like fumbling his way through explaining to his boss why he's getting the boot and um, there's some like really good mo- he has really good moments like that and he's quite a nice like audience kind of analog he handles a lot of the like exposition Again, what Jimmy was saying, the cinematography is great. Reminded me a lot, as a film in general, of The Wicker Man. Mm. This idea of the kind of cop who travels to the remote community and isn't convinced by their local rituals. And the interesting thing, to kind of come back to what you were saying, Anne, is that he's not right either. Yeah. 
So it's about a kind of like, there's an idea that it's about superstitious belief about demons and possession up against superstitious wisdom about the idea that if you are in a big institution like the army or the state, then you must be right because you're the one who makes up all the rules. And it's why the Doctor character is so interesting because she's kind of coming at it from a third angle of saying like, well, actually, maybe neither of you are right. And that's the thing that, that neither side regardless of their beliefs on demonic possession can really get on board with it's like i'll stand for a lot i'll stand for having all my guns taken off me and getting a slap in but i will not accept someone coming in here and telling me that science is the reason why these things aren't (laughs) happening it's similar in some ways actually to superior in the way that it's heading towards a point an end point and you kind of become aware that all these things are sort of converging it's that kind of storytelling um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wasn't sure about the recurring motif of urine throughout the film, but I mean, maybe that's just an easy way to do medical tests in a remote location. So maybe that's just <laughs> my own prudity coming through. But Yeah. One thing I thought would have made the film stronger is we maybe knew the villagers a bit more. I felt like maybe they were a kind of unit, you know, like a, a bunch of credulous people. We didn't really start to get to know them that well. We, are, we are, do very much spend time with the shaman the, the sergeant and the doctor, that's kind of the triumvirate of the film. And I guess they kind of represent the kind of three um, main sort of opinions, so maybe we didn't need to see it more. But yeah, I just felt like the, it would be nice to have met the villagers more, or even spend a bit more time. I thought it started very quickly, you know, that it starts with this young girl being possessed, and then so quickly it becomes, the, the plot kicks in. And I think if, 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 if they did stick with maybe the horror tropes a bit more, and sort of play out the atmosphere. Like I say, the best scenes, I think, are the ones that play with that horror atmosphere and sort of let the kind of film breathe a bit before they kind of get into the big dialogue scenes. Um, but yeah, kind of really promising, interesting film, kind of rich with, like, ideas. Um, and if you're interested in Iranian cinema, I de- definitely want to check it out. Mm. It is quite different, I think, from... Because I think so much Iranian cinema, especially the ones that make it over here, tend to be, like, working within social realism. Um, which is like really interesting and they are really great Um, but this I think it reminded me a little bit of actually um, Anna Lili Amirpour's A Girl Walks Home in a Night which is a better film that one is just like much better constructed and it's also not made in Iran which kind of gives it a certain freedom to do other things Um, but I think they both seem quite unique in that there isn't a lot of Iranian cinema that we get over here that is working within genre Um, and it's just really interesting to see how it works within those limitations while still having that same sort of inward look towards society. So Zalava is on on Sunday the 6th and Monday the 7th of March. It's also part of the Audience Award strand at Glasgow Film Festival. They have a kind of audience gives out a gong every year rather than it just being a bunch of Hollywood directors who've got a jolly to Venice (laughs) handing out all the awards so yeah Zalva is on the 6th and the 7th Uh, you can find the times at glasgowfilm.org I think it might also and I say this without having double checked but I think it is also playing in the like online on demand part of the festival Um, mostly because when I was looking up on Glasgow Film when it was showing it was showing over multiple days but they were online so I'm pretty sure that is correct I have checked it is correct amazing that (laughs) (laughs) okay and then Jamie your pick following on from 
uh, talking about directors in Iran using social realism. Your pick is a film about a filmmaker from East Africa who very much does not deal in the world of social realism. Uh, this is Once Upon a Time in Uganda. Yeah, this is a really lively documentary introducing us to the maverick action film auteur Azik Nabwana, um, who's a super enthusiastic self-taught filmmaker who's spent the last decade or so making these wildly over-the-top zero-budget movies inspired by overblown American action films that he grew up watching in the 80s. So he lives in this village called Wakalia, which is this tiny slum at the edge of uh, Kampala um, in Uganda. And in this most humble place, it's been dubbed Wakaliwood because, you know, he's making these, he's made industry basically on his own. Um, and uh, our guide into this wild west of filmmaking is New York filmmaker Alan Hoffmanis, who's recently been dumped by his fiance and is in a kind of real kind of creative slump at work. But he's kind of st- discovered Isaac's films online and just moved to the country because he loves them. And he's traveled to Uganda to try and kind of be part of this um, Wack Hollywood project. Um, and it's basically how these kind of two men sort of join, uh, make a friendship. I mean, I love films about filmmaking. So this was right up my street, you know, things like Burden of Dreams or Heart of Darkness, you know, any documentary uh, that goes behind the scenes um, of a movie is always interesting to me. Yeah, at, at its best, I think this is a real kind of great celebration of the creativity of filmmaking and the kind of wild communities that can spring up around one person who's got a kind of vision and a passion. You know, I really hate how movie making is so much about money, you know, and it's it's so inspiring to see this man who's working with absolutely no resources in this tiny village. He's making tanks from, like, leftover uh, scrap metal. He's making guns. He's making... Uh, he's making his own computers so he can do all these kind of like crazy uh, exploding head CGI. So it's just really, it's just a, a really uh, inventive way to make films. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's full of passion. It's full of excitement. It's like, it, he's, he's really enthusiastic, you know, like a, his enthusiasm burns off the screen. And you can see why somebody like Alan Hoffman is, how did he say his name? Hoffmanis, I believe. Sorry, Alan Hoff, you can see why Alan Hoffmanis has moved across the world to just kind of live with this guy and sort of be surrounded with his enthusiasm because he's become jaded by Hollywood and he goes here and sees somebody who's absolutely in love with cinema and the, the excitement of it uh, and I love all that. So it's kind of a buddy movie as well because it's really focused on the friendship that formed between uh, Isaac and Alan and I was a little bit wary at first because I thought, oh, is this just going to be like a kind of white saviour film? Is, is Alan coming over here because he wants to kind of show Isaac how filmmaking should really be done? But he doesn't at all. He, he kind of really pitches in and he lives uh, in the slum with them where they've got no electricity and sort of, uh, you know, basic running water and things like that. Um, so, yeah, he kind of basically has two roles. He becomes a kind of ambassador for this type of filmmaking. He, he sort of, his aim is to take it across the world and he does. He starts to take it to film festivals and he manages to get, like, Western press interested in what's happening. So he, you know, gets in contact with people like Vice and New York Times and things like that. But he also becomes the major villain in one of his films. You know, there's kind of bizarre sequences where we see Alan, like, being beat up by all these kind of, like, ninja assassins or, like, tied to a chair and sort of uh, his body ripped apart. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's strange that he, he is welcomed into this village in such a nice way, but actually how they welcome is with thumb into the villain and this kind of uh, evil character in all the films. 
So the, the, the film isn't just all about enthusiasm, though there's some sort of tension eventually develops between Isaac and Alan. That makes sense. They've worked together side by side for six years, so obviously there's going to be fallen outs. But one thing the film really, really didn't do is that well is explain why they fell out. I found that was a kind of muddy part of the film. Um, I would love to, to dig a bit deeper. Like I, like I thought it was it was incredibly fun looking at the film, the type of films Isaac was making. But I kind of wondered why he was making these type of films. You know, this is a man who grew up, um, you know, under Idi Amin. You know, he or, or in, certainly the aftermath of that. So I, I thought the film could have been a bit more interested in why he chose to make such violent films as it as a way of him taking control of his past because obviously he grew up surrounded by violence and now he's chosen to make films where he's turned violence into comedy we, we, we should say the films are hilarious um they're dubbed over by this uh, video jockey or video jokey uh, or video joker sorry as they call him and he sort of gives a running duration and it's it's a really inventive way of making movies actually i've never really seen anything like it but i thought the filmmakers could have been a bit wiser and something maybe digging into why he has chosen this type of film to make you know because he could have made any type of movie really um i don't know what you guys thought of this so i loved this film it was great i think that on the kind of like macro level um it's really good on like the kind of malign influence of money in art and on things like how class and like social strata can affect what people think you can and can't do um and this whole thing about it's kind of like a running line throughout the film about when Alan tries to get some press for Isaac's films, there's always the pushback is, oh, well, is this the kind of right film for someone from this background to be making? Why aren't they making something about, you know, about poverty or about history? Um, so that's the kind of like macro level. On the micro level, it's just so much fun. It's really exciting to watch these guys just doing what they love in a really like inventive and exciting and like Jamie was saying, very different way. There's just so much energy to the scenes, the kind of behind the scenes stuff where you're seeing them make these like action movies for about 40 quid, just in someone effectively in someone's back garden. Um, there's this real kind of like cast of just absolute characters. The props master who works on all the films and makes all of the props just out of scrap metal. The VJ Emmy, he's brilliant. It's like if someone got like a pirate radio DJ or a sound system MC and asked them to overdub a film, it's got the kind of like all the kind of like shout outs and he has like ad libs almost like an MC where he'll just shout about how Uganda makes the best action movies um, and just shout things like incredible action in the middle of an action sequence, which is what you want really. It's like, now I know what I'm watching and it is incredible. Um, I, I thought from a documentary perspective, sometimes you find when a documentary has a story, it feels like it's committed to that story, even when it kind of fizzles out. And I thought that there was something quite nice in the way that this was structured and paced that did take you on a bit of a journey and you weren't entirely sure what the resolution would be. Because like Jamie said, there is this kind of the two come together and then they have a falling out and you're not entirely sure what direction it's going in. And yeah, what Jamie was saying, I just want to watch some of these films. They look great. And like, you'd never see a more heartwarming story about a bunch of guys, yeah, again, effectively on the back green, making a film in the new genre, beating up the white man. So <laughs> yeah, I really loved it. I would highly recommend it. Anahit, what did you think? Yeah, I I think for me that there are two things to this film, right? There is what it's depicting, which is just objectively brilliant. Like, it's so wonderful to see 
this kind of real grassroots industry forming and just, yeah, the sheer enthusiasm and the sheer love they have for it. And that was all great. I think as a documentary and as a film of in itself, it wasn't my favorite of the three, which is like, okay. I think I found its focus a little bit frustrating. So kind of what you were saying about um, that kind of central conflict that becomes in a way like the arc of the documentary. I didn't find the tensions between the two kind of filmmakers-ish um, all that compellingly laid out. Um, and I didn't find it as interesting as the figure of Isaac himself and the films themselves. And I just wanted to hear more about this kind of film and more about why the action, because there's this bit towards the beginning where they talk about how they just like grew up on action films and you see scenes from like Rambo and Bruce Lee and all of these things. And I just find it fascinating how much that kind of action genre took like seed in the ground. It like grew like this beautiful, like that is such a gorgeous idea, that kind of inheritance and creating something new out of it. And I think I would have found that a lot more interesting than maybe whatever, what is the other guy's name? What do we say? Joseph? No. Alan. 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 <laughs> Where did I go? Okay. Uh, we're going to keep this in. I deserve that. Uh, Alan, like what he was doing. Um, I think it is really interesting though, as a comment on the relationship between money and filmmaking. There's one point where it's Isaac's wife, I think, talks about how like money makes people go mad. And I think that's so true. And thinking about that within sort of the Western filmmaking landscape at the moment and the kind of ongoing discourse around like Marvel and Disney Plus, and not in a cynical way, but in a genuine, like what kind of poverty are we creating when we monopolize, um, when we create monopolies around like filmmaking and the way that a lot of Western cinema has become like a theme park ride, essentially. Like, I think there is a real poverty of imagination because it is just so entrenched in capitalist structures over here. And so you're kind of seeing like this alternative, quite utopian way of making film and that it just feels so like lovely, but also kind of bittersweet because you remember that is like what it could be. Um, and so I thought that was all really, really good. So yeah, I did, I did enjoy it. Uh, great energy. Um, and when you do see the film's kind of making the circuit eventually and like see the joy of like Isaac and his sort of team in having like an audience and a broader international audience. It is just like so joyous and it is lovely. But yeah, I think I would have maybe shifted the focus as a documentary filmmaker more to, to just to the cinema itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, I think, yeah, it's... Um... Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I do agree. Uh, I, I, yeah, I do agree that I would have preferred the focus to be on Isaac as well. And it's really interesting that the joy uh, seems to steep out of the film once he gets a bit of attention. Because what happens is, initially, everybody's having so much fun just spending their days mucking around in their back garden making these daft films. But what happens is, once Isaac starts getting attention from all these kind of Western media outlets, people in the village start to wonder, start to assume he's making money or start to assume he's doing well for himself and asking, why are we not getting paid? Why are we not, where are we doing this for free anymore? So th so money does corrupt the kind of purity of his vision. And I don't really know how, because I assume now that these films are making money. Peter, you were saying that these are available to watch 
um, through like the Alamo Draft House and American things like that. So I wonder. Hopefully, it means that they're doing well and and they can actually they're they're actually building a little industry because they are super talented. We should say these films are so inventive and so creative, and it's just so inspiring. I mean, I. I I sometimes hate when I go to film events and you have people talking about budgets or the filmmakers complaining we didn't have enough money to make this film, whereas these are people out there making it for peanuts and less than peanuts. They don't, they don't have peanuts. They don't have anything. They're, they're like literally building the sets from the, the ground up. Um, and it's just so inspiring to see that passion. Um, but I, yeah, I really love to hope that this these people start to get money because like, it kind of happened um, with... Um, you know, Nollywood, like uh, yeah. in, in Nigeria, there's a kind of similar kind of grassroots um, action movie uh, set up and, and they've started to be really successful and start to be taken seriously on the kind of festival circuit. So I'd love the same to happen here. Yeah. So uh, Once Upon a Time in Uganda is on Saturday the 5th and Sunday the 6th of March at Glasgow Film Festival. Okay, so those were our main picks from the GFF programme, but we also, because we love films... <laughs> and also, once you give us a program, we can't stop picking things out of it. We've also highlighted some other stuff that looks really interesting, uh, which we're going to batter through quickly because we have to be out of this room in 32 minutes. So, Jamie, you've picked out some more stuff from the program, some big filmmakers, some little filmmakers, some nice stories. What have you got? Well, my first pick is called The Girl and the Spider. It's uh, from these Swiss brothers called the Zucker Brothers. And... They're really great filmmakers uh, who make very small films, usually in one or two spaces. And it's basically about a really tense flat move. It's about two friends. One of them is moving out. The other one is not happy about the situation. And it's how that tension over the day um, forms. So the first half of them is basically moving two halves. The first half is moving flat. And then the second half is the kind of house party, the kind of send off. It's basically like a, watching a pinball machine because it's just people walking in and out of rooms and it's kind of like a farce. And as you meet all the different characters, the mothers, the movers, the new neighbours, the old neighbours, they all collide and it's just constantly um, entertaining. Um, and I really, really loved it. Um, my second pick is The Hermit of Trigg. Scottish documentary, I think is in really good uh, form right now. And there's always a few good docs at GFF, so I always try to catch a few. This one is from director Lizzie McKenzie, and it follows her over kind of six years, actually. She followed this guy called Ken Smith, who's a hermit, who is living uh, up in Loch Trigg, which is up Fort Wyoming And yeah, it's just basically showing how he lives. He's a man who lives off the land, uh, who's decided to stay off grid. And I'm, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to, yeah, just seeing someone who's chosen... A different way of life because as the modern world we live in becomes more and more unlivable actually people who choose to live off the grid that their decisions start to look a bit more sane so it's actually going to be quite interesting to see why he chose to do this how he lives his life and yeah i think it'll be really fascinating i'm also looking forward to bergman island um, which is a new film from mia hansen love um, she's one of my absolute favorite filmmakers um, i really think she doesn't miss she basically all her films are really interesting um, and this one looks really meta and personal. Um, it's reportedly about her relationship with French director uh, Olivier Assias. Um, and it's also kind of paying tribute to uh, Igmar Bergman. Um, so it's set on Bergman Island, um, or, or Faroe Island, the island that, where he lived and made lots of his films. And it's about two filmmakers, played by Vicky Crisp and Tim Roth, who are kind of playing kind of vague versions of Mia Hansen Love and Olivier. Asias. And it's, yeah, it it's, it's looks really interesting. 
And my final pick is Nobody Has to Know, which is uh, another Scottish film, but it's um, from a Belgian uh, director, Boleyn Lanners, who's an actor who's turned director. And he's really, really good. So it's set in the island of Harris and Lewis, and it's a kind of romance, basically, um, about a man who has a stroke and loses his memory, and how he's kind of brought back to, you know, cared back to life by his carer, but the carer tells him one massive porky. She tells them that they used to be in a relationship. And uh, it basically sounds like uh, a kind of Scottish version of that Goldie Hawn Kurt Russell <laughs> film Overboard, but like with the roles reversed. It looks really beautiful. Um, supposedly the filmmaking is really wild and windswept like the, the, the island. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing a film set up there. Um, it's coming straight after Limbo a couple of years ago, so you know, it's nice to see the Scottish islands being used um, in interesting ways. And yeah, that's just looked great. So those are my picks. Good stuff. Anahe, what have you also been looking at? So, um, Farewell Amour is showing on the 12th of March, I believe. And it's this really very beautiful, very tender immigration story about a family of three and the father has been in New York for some years and his wife and daughter eventually, after these years, come gain like access or like a visa to America and so they join him um, from Tanzania but it has been several years since they've seen each other and it's this really beautiful film that is told um, three times from each perspective and you just like mentioned Limbo and I think it does a lot of what Limbo does in that it kind of humanizes obviously like these stories which is important but I think it also resists these narratives that we have that is like the idea of arrival being the end point, that once you've arrived to the country, that's the story completed. And it kind of looks at arrival actually as being kind of the start of new like tensions and possibilities. Um, and it's just really gorgeous. Um, and it is by um, director Ekwa Masangi. Um, and yeah, it's a very small, very beautifully realized film. Then Benediction is on the 7th and 8th and stars Leith's own Jack Loudon, I believe. Apparently he's always in the Leith Tesco, which <laughs> is good for him. Um, but it stars him, it's the new Terence Davies as um, Siegfried Sassoon, who was the First World War poet, and I think has the distinction among First World War poets to have survived the war. So it kind of looks at his life from like essentially the trenches through to his later life, where he is played by Peter Capaldi. Um, and it is just stunning. <laughs> like Terence Davis does like that kind of really melancholy, um, queer sort of love story and like your kind of liminal position in the world so well. And it is just like, yeah, it is heartbreaking. And if, like I think most of us were forced to study World War One poets, probably 15 times in school. And if you felt very jaded by them, like this is the film to watch. I really wish they talked about them in these terms. Because um, actually the stories are so heartbreaking and so very human. And I think I came to it really being like, oh my God, I cannot read another Sassoon poem ever again in my life. Um, and I came out of it really loving him. So that is the 7th and 8th of March. And then finally, I would recommend Audrey Diwan's um, Happening, which won the Golden Lion at Venice. And it is based on the Annie Ernaud memoir of the same name which is about her trying to get an abortion 
in 1960s France when it was illegal. Um, so not to keep like name dropping Venice, Ugh, I sound like such a dickhead, but mm-hmm. I did see this in Venice um, and a woman fainted <laughs> in the screening. Like we talked a lot post COVID about that kind of communal experience of cinema. And this was the most communal experience of cinema I've ever had in that every woman was just like in a state of shock. Um, it isn't like gory really or like, but it is just so like you just realize that, yeah, this has been our collective histories for so long and the way that this young girl is navigating it, it is so kind of meticulously told and beautifully acted. So yeah, that is the 8th and 9th of March. Good stuff. And then I've got three more things to recommend. So Futura is a documentary by three Italian filmmakers. So it's Pietro Marcello, who made Martin Eden, Francesco Munzi, and Alice Rohrwacher, who made Happy as Lazzaro. Lazzaro? Happy as Lazzaro. Basically, the three of these filmmakers go traveling across Italy to meet young people and get their sense of what their future looks like and what the future looks like for their generation. The clips and bits that I've seen just have a real kind of Agnes Varda type energy in the way, in the kind of shooting style, but also in the way that seems feels very kind of humanely done, like people get a long time to just say their piece and they go to a very kind of like diverse group, number of diverse groups of young people across Italy. Uh, so that's on the 4th and the 5th. Homage, which is a Korean film, is another one that looks really interesting. It's about a woman. She works in film restoration. She takes on this project to redub one of the first films made by a woman director in Korea. Jim was talking earlier about films about filmmaking. This is another one of those. And it also feels like a kind of film about your personal passions and your work and how they kind of connect to each other. And the main character is played by Lee jung Yun, who was the housekeeper in Parasite. So that's homage, that's on the 12th and the 13th. And then to kind of bring things back full circle about me being a very simple man who when they hear certain words put together immediately goes out and tries to buy tickets. Wild Man was uh, dubbed by somebody, I can't remember, as a, like a Danish Coen Brothers film. And that was me immediately on board. So it's about a guy who's kind of bored with his suburban life So uh, he decides that he is going to go off into the wild and live like they used to do back in the day. So he takes his tent and his big kind of like animal fur jacket and he's off to try and like have a bit of a wild one. And he ends up bumping into a drug runner who is kind of going across the hills and uh, hilarity and light violence ensue. So that's on the 11th and the 12th. That's Wild Men. Again, if you just walk past me saying things like, Imagine if the Coen brothers were Danish. Or like, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven's got a film about nuns. And I'll just be like, what was that? Where did that come from? I just realised I forgot to say any of the dates. Well, all the dates for all the screenings will be in the show notes, wherever you listen to your podcast. And we're also going to put them in the page that we have on the Skinny website. So if you go to theskinny.co.uk, we'll have all the dates and times when all these films are on. So if you haven't been taking notes so far, <laughs> don't worry. We've been taking notes for you. Um, so I think that's us. Glasgow Film Festival is very full of films. We've tried to help, but really we've recommended you about 14 different films. So we've narrowed it down a little. I feel like we've done a good job. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks again to Glasgow Film Festival for supporting this episode of The Cine Skinny. For full details of the whole GFF 2022 programme and to book tickets, you can go to glasgowfilm.org. And to keep up with the festival's latest news and like details of guests and other announcements, you can follow them 
on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, they're at Glasgow Film Fest on all of those. Thanks again to them for their support. Thanks to Jamie and Anahit for all of your lovely words about film. <laughs> We've so done a good job. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of the Cine Skinny. In the meantime, leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to get latest episodes. Tell your friends. Uh, and be sure to walk past people in the street whispering, what if it was a film podcast, but it wasn't very pretentious and they all just kind of had a good time. <laughs> Trust me, that kind of marketing does work. Okay, right, that's us. Thank you, bye. Bye. bye.